Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you now and we stand in a place of great uh, joy and anticipation. We also stand, Father, in a place of need because none of this will make any difference to us unless your Spirit is present to bless and to anoint both the preaching and the hearing. And we pray, Lord, that you would glorify yourself in whatever way you've ordained. Our prayer is that you would bless us with the Holy Spirit, that we might sense his presence and his power, and that you might bless us to grow in our walk with you and our experience of living in Christ. We're asking you, Lord, to do that for your honor and glory because you're worthy to be praised. Christ is to be adored and worshipped in the house of your saints. And we pray that you would bless us to do that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is one of my favorite times of year when fruit starts coming in. And I can go to the farmer's market and buy fresh peaches and tomatoes and corn and some of those things uh, are delicacies that only come part of the year. And uh, we go over to my old home place and buy, or buy, we pick blueberries. And uh, we're thankful for the abundance of fruit that God has given us to enjoy. And uh, there's something about that, that that the scriptures often pick up on. And it's true in this passage in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, we're being admonished to seek things that are above and to rejoice in the Lord and set our affections on things above. And he goes on after that in Colossians chapter 3 and describes what that looks like in real life. But the whole passage, that whole passage that we just read, all of Colossians chapter 3, has its setting in this idea of fruit bearing. Of fruit bearing. If we turn back to the beginning of the book in Colossians chapter 1, uh, we find Paul in verse 3 giving thanks to God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ praying for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope that's laid up for you in heaven, where have you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is coming to you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you. And then we go on over to verse 10, and Paul is encouraging the Colossians to uh, grow and to learn how to walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. And there's this idea of our fruit-bearing that is, is in the forefront of the apostle's mind as he comes to chapter 3. And it's all through this, uh, this passage here. He, he calls our attention to the necessity of bearing fruit. Uh, and when I say necessity, I, I almost hate to use that term because it's not like something that you've got to uh, grit your teeth and do to bear fruit. It's not a work. Fruit bearing is not a work. It's certainly not a work of the flesh. But there's this thing of bearing fruit. That's why God created us. God made us as his people. He called us by his Spirit. And he redeemed us in Christ. Not that we would be barren trees that are like the pine tree. I mean, the pine tree bears a cone, but my goodness, who gets a lot of joy out of a pine cone? 
I don't have any of those for breakfast on my cereal. And, uh, you know, it, it, that, that, that's not why God made us. He, he didn't create us to be plants that just encumber the ground. I know a lot of you that grew up out in the country, you'd sometimes see plants in a garden that would just flourish and have all kinds of greenery on them. I remember seeing squash plants like that. And you think, my goodness, we're going to have a bumper crop of squash or whatever. And in the end, you got very little fruit. So God didn't create us to be uh, plants in his kingdom that just take up space and are just just taking in resources and not ever producing anything. He He's looking for fruit in our lives that please him, that he enjoys seeing, and that is refreshing to others of his people that come around us and that live with us. Uh, so this, this fruit-bearing, Paul says, is important. It's, it's, it's us walking worthy of the Lord, being fruitful in all kinds of good works. And he reminds the uh, Colossians, uh, that this fruit is born as a result of us being in the kingdom of God. In Colossians chapter 1, uh, in verse 12, he, he says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Now, it's almost like a transplant. God took us out of a barren and unfruitful place, the place of the flesh, the darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and He took us out of that and He put us in a fertile ground and placed us in His kingdom in order that He could see this bounty of fruit produced in our lives. God used that imagery to describe Israel after the flesh many times. He said, Israel was a vine that I took out of Egypt and I transplanted that vine and I carried it over to the promised land, to the land that I had promised Abraham and I planted my vine there. And I then look for fruit. I look for the result of that transplant. And even when Jesus came to earth, that was still an issue with fleshly Israel. And one of the parables that Jesus spoke, he said, there was a, a, a gardener, a, a, a person who had a garden. And he had a vine that wasn't producing. And the servants came and said, let us cut this vine down. And the gardener said, well, let's dig around it, let's cultivate it, let's dung it, fertilize it. And let's do that this year, and let's do it next year, and let's give it every opportunity possible to bear fruit. And if it doesn't, then we'll cut it down and cast it into the fire. And that was very much a picture of Israel after the flesh. Christ and his apostles didn't just come, and when Christ came uh, into Israel, when he came to his own, he didn't just immediately say, oh, no fruit. We're going to cut you down and cast you into the fire. But as it were, he and the apostles preached to Israel They they dug, they, they cultivated, they fertilized for a whole generation, waiting for Israel to respond. Now, of course, God knew that they weren't going to, of course, but, but humanly speaking, they were giving Israel every opportunity to accept the Messiah and to bear the fruit of the kingdom of God. And, of course, they didn't. And Paul says to the Colossians that there is a reason that God has done things. God has done great things for you in order that you bear fruit. 
Now, listen. If we are just thinking today, well, I'm going to think about this letter as Paul writing to the Colossians almost 2,000 years ago. And what he's saying here is something that was relevant to them, but doesn't have very much bearing on me. We're going to miss the meaning of what Colossians 3, 1 through 4 means. But look, Paul is not saying something just to Colossae, to the church in Colossae. He's saying something to our church this morning, to us individually. And so he's saying, I want you to bear fruit. I want you to have abundant fruit. And he's going to describe what that is in a little bit. But he says, I want you to remember that in what God's done for you, he has delivered you. Look at verse uh, 13 of chapter 1. He's delivered you from the power of darkness. Amen? Praise the Lord. You're delivered from the power of darkness. Sometimes we feel like we're captivated by the power of darkness. We feel like we're oppressed. That we live in a dark day, which we do in many ways, but we feel overwhelmed by it. We we feel like that there's no way I can survive. And let me add this right here. God help us to be encouraged at these things. And I want to say something to us. It doesn't matter how dead we may think ourselves to be as trees in God's vineyard or as vines. If God is in us, there's life. And there may be needed a lot of pruning, as it were, and a lot of chastening. But no matter where we are, individually, as a family, as a church, we are not beyond the fruit-bearing capabilities that God has placed in us. We may say, I feel such deadness of soul. And I look at others around me and they they look dead. But that's not the case. God wants us to say, no, God has delivered us from the power of darkness. He's not left us captivated and helpless. And so so Paul says that in order for you to bear fruit, you've got to know and, and understand and believe by faith that God has delivered us from the power of darkness. He's translated us into the kingdom of his son. We're not still in the infertile place. We're not in the old red clay of North Alabama hills. We're over in the fertile Mississippi Valley of God's kingdom. And that's where God's planted us. And in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Oh my goodness, our fruit bearing is totally dependent on us understanding and accepting the fact that we have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. Redemption is an incredible part of the culture in which we live. There is the desire for there to be redemption. I'm thinking about movies that include the word redemption in their name. The Shawshank Redemption. I'm thinking about themes of, you know, superheroes being ultimately redeemed and declared righteous where they were thought to be evil somewhere along the line in the movie. There is the desire to see a deliverance and something better take its place. And Paul is saying this fruit bearing that we're to uh, enjoy and that's to be pleasing to God is through a knowledge that the redemption that we need has been accomplished. And then he wants us to look not only at what God has done for us in the past, in order to bear fruit. 
He wants us to look at who God is, and especially, especially, beloved, who Christ is. Look what he says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse, uh, uh, verse 16. He, he goes from talking about what God has done through us, uh, for us through Christ to concentrating on who Christ is himself. He is the firstborn of every creature. Now that doesn't mean, as some heretics have said, that Christ was born at some time, and it just so happens that Christ was born just the way we were born. It's just that he was born a lot earlier, making Christ a creation of God himself. That's not what this imagery means. The firstborn was the place of preeminence. And so what Paul is saying is, that Christ, as the Son of God, has the preeminent place, and he'll say that very thing in just a little bit. Christ, as the firstborn of God, the, the preeminent one, occupies first place in his kingdom. It's him that is to be glorified. He accomplished redemption for us. And then he says that that in verse 16, that all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Now, now just think, just let this generate in your soul. God loved me in Christ. Christ humbled himself. He came to earth. He redeemed me. He forgave all of my, the Father forgave all of my sins because of Jesus Christ my Lord. Who is this Jesus Christ my Lord? He's the firstborn of every creature. He is the preeminent one. He is the, He is the creator. He is not only distinctly one with me, in, in, in the fact that he became human and dwelt among us, and he took on flesh like I have, and he's my brother. Not only is he like me, but he is totally different from me too. He is the creator. It was through him that God created everything and set everything in motion. And it's for Christ who died on the cross of Calvary for my sake. It's for him that everything in history exists. God is causing everything that happens to redound ultimately to the glory of Christ, my Lord, my Savior. My elder brother. He is the head of the church. Now this gets it down to where we are this morning. It's not just an eternity past. God did something magnificent and whether you call it the Big Bang, Big Bang, and Brother Rob Carter is going to object to that terminology, I'm almost certain, or whether you call it just God spoke, it's not just something in the remote recesses of antiquity that God did in redeeming Egypt uh, out of—I mean, rede- sorry, redeeming Israel out of Egypt. It's not even some great remote thing that somebody on a hilltop in, in Judea in uh, AD 30 died on the cross. It's not just that, but it is also that this one is. Our head now, today, and right here. I appreciate the emphasis that was made a few moments ago about this Christ being here now with us. And He looks at, He he is our head. He is the head of the church, us, today. He is our head. 
He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And by, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him I say whether there be things in heaven or things in earth. Now, all of this is toward the idea of us abounding in fruit. Paul is saying to us, look at what God has done for us. Look at what God has done. He's redeemed us through Christ. Look at who Christ is. Look at all the glory associated with Him. And not only that, now he's saying, look at what God is going to do through Christ ultimately. God, through Christ ultimately, is going to completely purge sin from His creation. Isn't that good? There won't be any bad trees. There won't be any hindrances to fruit bearing. In the end, it's all going to be God all and in all and through all and everywhere. The devil's in his place. Sin is in his place. And the creation of God itself will be completely purged of this sin. Well, Paul goes on to um, several things that depict uh, what God has done for us, and we'll come back to that a little bit later, Lord willing. But I want to say that I'm not sure how my time is going to be. I promise you that I will not go way beyond where we normally stop. But uh, I want to eventually get to Colossians chapter 3 and talk about the things that Paul says there uh, in relation to our fruit bearing. But I, I, don't, I don't want to just rush to that without really, really um, impressing our minds about what Paul is really saying here as he leads up to that place in Colossians 3 where he says, if you're risen with Christ, seek those things that are above and so forth. I, w- I want us to to feel the weight of where he's going here with this idea of fruit bearing and how important it is and how central it is to the kingdom of God. So I want to take just a few minutes to talk about uh, a few things that the Bible says about fruit bearing. Um, As we said, the uh, nation of Israel after the flesh did not bear the fruit that God was desirous of, and and he cast them off. And he transferred the kingdom to a nation that would what? Bring forth the fruit thereof. Uh, God is desirous of his people bearing fruit that pleases him that he enjoys, if you'll forgive this very demeaning term to God, he wants fruit that he enjoys on his cereal for breakfast. That's, that's anthropomorphism taken to a new low, I guess. But he wants to come to his garden, us, and find the fruit that's pleasing to him. And you remember John the Baptist. Here's a thought I want us to have. Us bearing fruit is what distinguishes us from the non-elect, from those that are lost and outside of God, outside of Christ. John the Baptist was baptizing in the early days of uh, the Lord's appearance on earth, and he was making the way for Christ, preparing the way for Christ. And uh, people were asking him, are you the Messiah, and are you the Christ, and, and all this kind of things. And, and he, was, he was saying, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm, he was confessing, I'm not the Christ. But still, because he was doing something that was unusual, I don't know why exactly, but all kinds of people were coming to his baptism. And he saw some of the scribes and Pharisees there, and somehow, 
Again, I'm not sure how he knew this, but somehow he knew they were not coming in a sincere manner in faith in Christ. They were coming for some other motive. Don't know what exactly. I don't. But John the Baptist looked at them and he said, Who has warned you vipers? to flee from the wrath that's about to come. I think I've mentioned to you before that in that area where John was baptizing, it was a land that had a lot of low-lying shrubs and uh, scrubby trees and that kind of thing. And there were a lot of vipers and snakes that lived in the the crevices of the rocks. And sometimes uh, fire would break out in the brush and the grass, and that fire would, would make its way along the ground. And, uh, and fiery serpents, not fiery serpents, sorry. I'm mixing my stories of Moses. and But uh, serpents would, because of the heat, would leave their holes and scurry along in front of the flames. And John is making an allusion, I believe, to that. He's saying, you scribes and Pharisees that don't believe in Christ and you don't have a sincere heart of faith, you're like these snakes that are uh, trying to escape the fiery destruction. And you're coming to my baptism. Do you know that fire is about to envelop this place and that filling in the blanks. Within one generation, God is going to send fire on this place and destroy this place. And what are you trying to do? Escape that? The answer is, of course, no. We're just here to, for some other reason. It's not We're not here in faith. And we don't really believe that Jesus is going to destroy this place. But what did John the Baptist say to them? He said, before I can baptize you, you bring forth fruit, meat, or fitting for repentance. In other words, you show me the fruit that accompanies salvation, and I'll baptize you. Uh, so, So this... This fruit bearing discriminates. It makes, it marks the difference between those who are truly followers of Christ and those that are not. Now let me say this, uh, evidently, from what we see in the rest of Scripture, the fruit that's required is a true confession of faith in Christ. It's not that you lead a life of, you know, 70 weeks or something like that without committing a mortal or venal sin or whatever. You know, John the Baptist wouldn't say, okay, I'm going to put you on probation and watch you and see how your fruit goes. The fruit that was required is like the fruit that the Ethiopian eunuch asked Stephen when Stephen preached to him Christ, which is what John the Baptist was preaching. And the eunuch said at one point, well, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Peter said, if you believe, you may. If you truly believe what I'm saying to you about Jesus being who he is, and that redemption is solely and only through him, And if you believe your sins are remitted through Christ, in Christ alone, you can be baptized because that distinguishes you from those that are not God's children. And so the the fruit that is needed, uh, that the Scriptures talk about, uh, is distinguishing fruit. It marks the elect from the non-elect, the people of God from those who are not. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7, and we find Jesus saying the same things. 
Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets which come into you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Now look, it's possible for the people of God to be confused and deceived. The scriptures later talk about in the New Testament false brethren brought in unawares. And so it's possible for a Simon, like in Acts chapter 8, to profess faith in Christ and be baptized and for a while to be considered as a follower of Christ. But there will come a time, and we're led to believe that it will usually be in this life, there will come a time when that will be exposed. And those people that are false to the covenant of God should be expelled. And they should be recognized as not ever having been in true fellowship with God. And so Jesus says that there are false prophets that come in sheep's clothing. Some of them are going to get into your assemblies. But you're going to know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? The answer is no, they do not. Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. These are the words of Christ. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Now, does that mean that every good tree if you're a good tree, you never have a bad thought, a bad day, a bad word. You never think badly about a brother. You never commit a sin. All you bring forth is good fruit. No, it doesn't. There are trees in our orchard at the old home place that even this year have a lot of abundant fruit. But you know what? There are some bad apples on the apple trees. There are some scrawny pears on the pear tree. There are uh, things that are undesirable. The blackberry vines or briars have stickers, stickers on them. And I don't think Christ is saying, you don't ever have anything undesirable on you but the characteristic fruit. An apple tree is going to bear apples. If it doesn't ever bear apples, if it bears nothing but, I don't know what, bad something, bad something that's hanging off of it that doesn't taste good, it doesn't resemble an apple, it doesn't look like an apple, it's not an apple tree. And that's what Jesus is saying. And every tree that, that bringeth not good fruit, let me, let me see, let me finish verse 18. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. We may think it's good fruit, it may look like it's good fruit for a while, but eventually it will be proven that it's not truly good fruit. Verse 19, John seven nineteen. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Turn with me to John chapter 12 and verse 24. There are some conditions for us bearing fruit. John chapter 12, I'll begin reading verse 23. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. It abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Dearly beloved, we cannot bear fruit alone. Now, a lot of us have a tendency 
that, well, for whatever reason, I'll not try to go through all the psychological things that go through our minds, but for whatever reason, we think, I'm a loner. I'm just destined to be out there on my own, the Lone Ranger. Uh, nobody's working with me. I can't get along with anybody. They can't get along with me. Uh, and so I'm just going to try to go out here by myself and bear fruit on my own. That's impossible, according to God's Word. And what Jesus says is that in order for us to bear fruit, we're going to have to die. Doesn't sound like fun, does it? I've got to die. I've got to die to my self-seeking and my self-interest and my my being preoccupied with myself and thinking about myself and woe is me and nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I think I'll go out and eat some worms kind of mentality. We've got to die to that. And we've got to say things like, my life is not my own. Like Paul said, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am dead to myself. By Christ, I'm crucified to the world. I'm crucified to my old self. I'm crucified to everything except Him. And I fall to the ground as a dead, as it were, seed. And you know what happens? What happens to corn? You plant an individual kernel of corn. And that does not bear fruit or yield a harvest by having a whole bunch of individual kernels of corn. The fruit that's yield, that is yielded, that's produced, comes in clusters. Grapes are the same way. I know you could say, well, what about apples? And even apples are clustered oftentimes. Blueberries are in clusters a lot of times. So the, let's not press the analogy too far. But let's recognize that when an individual seed is planted, oh, thank you, Lord. Even an apple has multiple seeds in the apple itself. The fruit has multiple. One thing is planted, I think, probably in every case, the fruit itself comes in bunches. And so a corn, this more nearly what the Lord is saying here, a corn kernel falls to the ground. It dies. It has to lose its life. But it's transformed into a cluster, an ear that has a lot of rows and a lot of, a lot of grains clustered together. And that's in a very real way. That's the way it is in the kingdom of God. I, as an individual, die. And my fruit is born in a cluster called the church. And... Paul emphasizes that in Colossians. He's the head of the church and he's called us to peace and to glorify him in one body. I'll say this, the, the New Testament never contemplates a child of God living a life of fruit bearing apart from a local congregation. Never. We're called to bear fruit as the body of Christ, as the church. Collectively. We die individually. We bear fruit collectively. Well, that's where the fruit really gets manifested, isn't it? 
That's where the fruit of long-suffering and patience and gentleness and kindness and humbleness of mind is manifested, isn't it? Someone gave me a DVD about parenting children and living in a family. And uh, I don't remember the exact quote from the cover of the DVD, but it had something to do with sanctification. Children as a means of sanctification. Perhaps the carpenters and spicers can relate to that, especially right now. But that's where it's only in living in community that us dying to ourselves as an individual grain allows us to bear fruit in connection with a lot of other kernels of grain. And that's the picture that uh, is consistent throughout the Scriptures. And the Lord goes on in in chapter 12, if you would... uh, well, let me just go to another uh, another place. Uh, in John chapter 15, uh, turn with me, if you would. John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he um, applauds. He uh, takes a picture of it. He pampers it. No. Every branch that bears fruit, he purgeth it. That doesn't seem right. I'm bearing fruit, Lord. What are you doing to me? Why am I still in the crucible? Why are you still chipping away at me? Why are you nipping off some of my dead little buds? I'm bearing fruit. Leave me alone. Jesus said, no. The fruit-bearing limb gets pruned. Why? That it may bring forth more fruit. Now, you're clean through the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. Now, that's a wonderfully rich passage there, and we'll just stop right there. But this this thought of purging is similar to what Hebrews says, that, that we are chastened. In Hebrews 12, chapter 11, if we're sons, the Lord chastens us. If we're in the vine and we're producing fruit, the Lord purges us. Uh, and that's a continual process. Now, I'm going to say something here that that, uh, that I hope I can make clear. I began by saying that Israel was a vine that God took out of Egypt, placed in her land, and she was to bring forth fruit, and she didn't. But there was a part of that vine that was living. And the part of Israel's vine after the flesh that was alive was Christ Jesus our Lord. He was in that vine. He was part of that vine. And he was the only living part of that vine. And all of those that are in him are in the living part of the vine. And they will bear fruit. The parts that aren't, that weren't in Israel after the flesh got cut off and cast into the fire. The parts that are in Christ, that are in the living part of the vine, do bear fruit, and He purges them, those parts, that they might bear bear more fruit. Okay. Um, Let's turn to Romans chapter 6. And we'll stop with this passage. Romans chapter 6. This is the passage that uh, includes uh, a passage about baptism at the first of Romans chapter 6. But I want to start with verse 16. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. 
Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. And I'm going to go ahead and say this the way I believe the original uh, meant. You are, uh, you, you have um, obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Being made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? Now let's think about that a minute. How many of us are proud and happy and content with any fruit that has ever been yielded from our sin. In our sane moments, it all makes sense, doesn't it? Nothing that I've ever done that's been a work of the flesh or that's been for my glory or that's been for some base reason, whether that's revenge or jealousy or anything like that, I'm not proud of it. I'm not, I don't rejoice in it. I'm ashamed of it. And Paul is saying, don't get confused about this. The fruit that you enjoy the fruit that you approve, not just God and not just fellow Christians, but even you yourself. The fruit that you really enjoy is the fruit that's born by the Holy Spirit of God in you and working in you to will and to do of God's good pleasure. And when you see God's Spirit working in you to bring about love, joy, peace, long-suffering. And you are content with such things as you have. And you have the peace of God that passes understanding. That's something to rejoice in. And you're not rejoicing because you did it. You're rejoicing because you know that you could not of your own self have produced that. So Paul asked this question, what fruit uh, had you in the things that you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. Now remember where we're going with this in Colossians. If you're dead with Christ, seek those things that are above. Bear fruit that way. And, 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 and Paul is saying here to the Romans that we're free from sin and become servants to God and we have our fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Know you not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth, for the woman hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. And if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Now, Paul's, Paul's purpose is not to get sidetracked into divorce and remarriage here. His purpose is to say this. There's been a clean break between you and the devil. There's been a great division between you and your past life. There has been an irreconcilable death of the old man. And you can't be joined to him again. 
You're separated. You're free to be married to Christ. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married unto another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that ye should bring forth fruit unto God. For when you were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in the members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now ye are delivered, we are delivered, from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not with oldness of the letter, bringing forth fruit. Paul didn't say that, but that's his point. We're dead. The law is dead to us. We're dead to sin. There's been this great death of our former husband, and we're now free to be married with no questions asked, no matter what your, no matter what your position is on divorce and remarriage. If your husband is dead, you're free to be married. And Paul is saying that your old husband of sin, empowered by the law, is dead. And you're married to Christ. And you're to bring forth the fruit of that union. It's as natural as can be. But if we, if we still think that our old husband is still alive and, and we're still bound to him and we're still trying to find him even perhaps sometimes and, you know, we're, we're not clear on that, our fruit bearing is going to be inhibited. And Paul is saying, don't be that way. Don't be that way. So we will stop there and pick this up after lunch, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless us as we approach the passage where Paul encourages us to seek things that are above. Help us to recognize it's in the context of him desiring that we increase in our fruit bearing and that we, uh, Father, desire that and long for that and, and we'll be open to what he says to us in Colossians as we come to that place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.